It was evangelist Vance Havner was preaching in 1974 at the Moody Founders Week. And the subject that he was assigned was the subject of evangelism. And this is what he said, Vance Havner. Evangelism is to Christianity what veins are to the human body. You can cut Christianity anywhere and it will bleed evangelism. Evangelism is vascular. It is our business. How can we talk about majoring on evangelism? You might as well talk about a doctor majoring on healing. Evangelism is our business. And you know, sometimes we don't think just like that. Sometimes I think we put evangelism in a category of one of the many things that we should do and maybe one of the things that, because it's not easy to do, that we might push it down the list a little bit. But you know, when you read the scriptures and you come to realize, why is the church on earth? We are here to be the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here to declare the gospel and to live it out on a daily basis. That's why the church exists to reflect the message of Jesus to the world. God had an, an evangelist by the name of Isaiah. Have you ever thought of Isaiah as an evangelist? Automatically, we think of Isaiah as a prophet. And I trust that you've turned your Bible, if you haven't already, to Isaiah chapter 55, because we're going to look at Isaiah the prophet, of course, but he was also called the servant of the Lord. And as the servant of the Lord, he was an evangelist. Do you ever stop and think about the early church, what their Bible was? Did the early church have leather-bound Bibles like we have? They didn't. Did they have the New Testament in the first few years of the church? They didn't. The first book of the New Testament that's written is the book of James in the late 40s, like 48, 49. And the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote is Galatians 49. When did Jesus uh, die and go to heaven? After he rose again from the dead and the resurrection, he was ascended right around 30, 29, 30 A.D. So you've got almost 20 years for the early church did not have even Paul's letters. And how long did it take for Paul's letters to be collected? Or let's say the Gospel of Matthew that was written around 56 A.D. Or some of the other um, scriptures. And of course the New Testament wasn't even completed till 95 A.D. And so the early church, what Bible did they have? Class? The Old Testament. And they all had leather-bound Old Testaments that they carried around, Right? No, they didn't. Where was the Old Testament? It was in the closet of a synagogue. You know, that's where they kept it. They had a special thing. They didn't call it a closet, but, you know, it looked like a closet, all right? And that's where they kept the scrolls in there. And so you wanted to hear the scriptures. As a Jewish person, you went to synagogue, and they got it out on Sabbath, and they read from it. And from time to time, you would hear uh, teachers teach 
but you didn't have your own copy of Scripture at home to do your devotions. You know, and I don't think we think like that. What was the Bible that the Apostle Paul preached? The Old Testament. All the, the Apostles. The message that they preached was the risen Christ, but the Scriptures were showing Christ in the Scriptures, right? Isn't that what Jesus did in Luke 24 with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road? when he took them to the scriptures and declared himself from them? You know, we tend to neglect the the Old Testament. I love to preach the New Testament. It's so much easier. It's like the big red easy button for me, you know? Like, oh, New Testament, push that button. Oh, man, I like that. Because you can just take the New Testament because it's written right to the church and the application is right to the church. Old Testament, you don't get that easy button. What do you get? Well, you get a lot of names that you can't pronounce, for one thing. And you get, if you go back to the original languages, you get Hebrew, which goes backwards from right to left and has all kinds of interesting things to think about. But I want you to know, the Old Testament is God's Word for us too. And we need to be students of it. Did you know that one out of every New Testament verse is either a direct quote or allusion to the Old Testament? And so you can't read the New Testament without having the Old Testament on every page. You get a good reference Bible and start checking out the references. See how many New New Testament Passages have the Old Testament. Okay? Today, I want to look at the Gospel according to Isaiah from Isaiah 55. And then my goal is going to be to take the entire book of Isaiah and find what the apostles would preach to us today. And so we're going to be spending some time. We're going to be I want to say camping out with Isaiah, but he didn't camp out much. He hung around the the king's courts all the time. So God had an evangelist by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah had a title, my servant, or the servant of the Lord. It's mentioned 23 times. Isaiah is called my servant in chapter 20, verse 3. And Israel, or Jacob, is referred many times as the servant of the Lord. And so this title, my servant, keeps coming up in the book of Isaiah. When you get to Isaiah chapter 50, and especially Isaiah 50 chapter, through chapter 53, something changes about the servant of the Lord. And he starts saying things about the servant of the Lord that used to sound like Isaiah, but now they sound like somebody else. And you know Isaiah 53, right? That's the suffering servant. It actually begins in 52.13 and goes into chapter 53. The suffering servant. And so the backdrop of Isaiah 55 is what just happened in Isaiah 53 and 54. And so when we come to Isaiah 55, we have the Lord speaking through Isaiah to all people, an incredible invitation. 
Now, we're not going to study Isaiah 53 yet, but I'm sure looking forward to it. It is the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. And I intend to prove that to you when we get to it. But, if the message of Isaiah 53 was the suffering servant, and the question in the original people's minds was, well, who is that suffering servant? Well, we know, don't we? It's the Messiah, Jesus. We know, because we have the New Testament, and we can look back at the Old Testament through the lenses of the New, and we can see all these things that they couldn't see. But in Isaiah's time, in light of what the suffering servant did, according to chapter 53, and then chapter 54 is speaking directly to Israel, calling Israel back. And then chapter 55, where we are right now, Isaiah 55, is an incredible invitation. The Lord offers this invitation to all people, not just Israel. He opens it up to everyone. He says here, come everyone who thirsts. And so he's going to offer to the spiritually thirsty and hungry to come to him and to be satisfied. And it really prefigures the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew 11. You ever heard these words? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is what? Light. Matthew 11. This passage prefigures what Jesus said in Matthew 11. In addition to this incredible invitation to the thirsty and hungry, the Lord's going to give an inflexible instruction. And that's really going to be pointed to unbelievers in particular. And then thirdly, there is this mystery aspect of the gospel. Remember we saw that in Ephesians? The mystery of the gospel? And it has different layers to it? I alluded to all of them last week. I don't know if you caught that. But this mystery aspect of the gospel, God's inscrutable intent cannot be traced. Have you ever, have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard how God's ways are far above our ways? Oh yeah, you've heard that. Well, that's what we're going to look at right now. In the next few moments, my, my outline, the gospel according to Isaiah includes God's incredible invitation, his inflexible instruction, and his inscrutable intent. So I want to look, first of all, God's incredible invitation is offered to all people. Now there's so much here, and... You know my temptation is to look at every little detail, but we won't be able to do all that. But I want to get as much as we can. So let's look here at Isaiah 55. God's incredible invitation is offered to all people. Now we said in chapter 54, an invitation was given to Israel alone. But now you come to chapter 55, this invitation is opened up to everyone, the whole world. And this is what he says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, was he talking about literally getting water to drink, wine to drink, and milk to drink. Was that literally what he's talking about? As we read the scripture, 
And you know, some of our reference Bibles put the print in certain way that make poetry stand out from prose. Have you ever noticed that? Not everybody's Bible does that. Now, some Bibles are you know, verse by verse by verse, and they don't do that. Some Bibles are put together with paragraphs, and you need to take note of that kind of thing. Now, in particular here, the ESV shows that a lot of Isaiah is poetry. I remember I said to, um, when I was a young pastor, I would say a lot of smart aleck things, but uh, I said to an older brother in the Lord who I really highly esteemed, I said, why did Isaiah take 66 chapters to say what he could have said in about three or four? And my older brother looked at me and just smiled and just kind of shook his head like, mm, God doesn't work that way. That was Chuck Guth, a godly, godly man who served in the Sudan. He was the first white man to go into the Sudan in the 20th century. And he and his wife, he met his wife there. She followed and they had such an incredible ministry. I wish I could tell you some stories about that. Why did Isaiah use so much poetry? Apparently because we need to hear things over and over and over before we get it. I don't know about you, but in English class, I wasn't all that thrilled about poetry. I could not figure out what the teacher wanted half the time, and the teacher would see stuff in there that I never saw and never wanted to see, you know? But I've changed my mind about that because God's Word is made for us to understand. And you, you need to have that as one of your promises. The Bible is written for you to understand it. It is not written for you to be confused. And if you want to understand it and you're willing to work at it, you will get it. Okay? And, and I'm finding that I'm still working on it, but I'm finding that to be true. God's Word is meant to be understood. Yes, you have to work at it. And so when he says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he's not saying so much, drink literal water. What does this remind you about Jesus in the New Testament? What was the incident? The woman at the well. Good. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She's, he says, I'm thirsty, can you give me a drink? And she looks at him like, why are you talking to me? You know, I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman, you, what are you doing? You have to love that passage. But Jesus wasn't talking about literal water, was he? He was trying to show her that she had a need, a spiritual thirst, much deeper than her physical thirst. That's what Isaiah is saying. Come everyone, all you who are spiritual thirst, spiritually thirsty, all of you who are hungry. By the way, are you hungry today? Well, there's hope because we're going to have lunch, okay? But, but are you hungry for the Word of God? You know, one of my goals as your pastor is to feed you the Word. And I want you to be hungry for it. I want you to want it. I want you to want to feed upon it. And, and you notice this, this invitation, this incredible invitation that God offers through Isaiah to all people is only for the spiritually thirsty. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
He says, if you're thirsty, come. If you sense you have a need, come. You see, this offer is free. There's no charge. And he, he not only says water, but he says wine and milk. The valuable things, this poetic imagery for something that really, really satisfies. But, but what is it that satisfies us today? If you came here spiritually hungry today, what were you looking for? When you came in and realized we're going to sing praise to the Lord, then we're going to open the Word, pastor's going to get up front, what were you looking for? You know, what, what are some of the needs? Some of the needs that the heart include freedom from guilt. Do you need that? I do. Freedom from fear. Do you need that? I do. Deliverance from anxiety. The need for security. Oh, God, help me with my problem. And whatever that happens to be today, you know? God is offering this incredible invitation to you today, if you are spiritually hungry and thirsty, that he will meet that need. That's what he's saying. But you know what? You have to ask. The story is told about Henry Ford. I think everyone knows who he is. Started the Ford Motor Company back in the early 1900s. And of course, he became very wealthy and well-known around the world. And at some point, he bought this huge insurance policy that was like over a million dollars for, for something. And back then, that was just like off the chart, more money than anybody had ever thought about. And he happened to have many, many friends, and there was one of his friends in the insurance business, and it was on the news that he had this insurance policy somehow came out. And, and so his friend in, in the insurance said, I'm, I'm kind of hurt. You bought that policy from somebody else. I'm your friend. Why didn't you buy it from me? You know what Henry Ford said? You never asked me. You never asked me. You want your needs met? You have to ask. You come anticipating what God's going to do? We need to come expecting Him to do what He says that He can do. You see, the world is offering all kinds of things. The world cannot satisfy the deep needs of your heart. And that's what He says here in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You know, the world's always offering stuff. There's those escape mechanisms like alcohol, various kinds of drugs. Maybe it's the pursuit of pleasure. There's things that, you know, some people think if I can just accumulate the most things, if I can just have a whole bunch of money in the bank, or if I can have uh, two or three houses or a boat or, or, or some extra thing that that I don't have, that I want. And you know, having things, by the way, is not wrong. But if that's what you're trying to find to satisfy the deep things of your heart, you're going to come up empty. And that's what he says. 
This invitation that the Lord is offering to all people through Isaiah here has eternal consequences. Notice what it says in verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me, and hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Okay, here we go. Here's one of those Old Testament passages, and you can read it. And you know, I have a library with thousands of books in it, and you know, you get what different people think about Scripture, and you can get so many different ideas sometimes. In fact, you almost wonder, you know, if, if God really wants us to know what it means, and why is it that godly men sometimes differ? You know? You know why godly men sometimes differ? Because they're not God. And we're going to find out in a moment, God's ways are far above ours. As we seek to interpret Scripture, I want to remind you, there is a correct interpretation for every verse of Scripture. And there's many applications. But how do we find what the correct one is? The one main method I want you to know is to read the entire Bible over and over and over and bring all of the Bible to bear on any one part of it. And that's what I've been trying to do my life. I want to bring the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, to every part of it. And if you do that, you will find the right interpretation. Well, you might be reading verses 3 through 5 and say, Pastor, I don't even know what you're talking about. What is the problem with that passage? Well, the problem is this. He mentions a covenant, an everlasting covenant. But he doesn't say exactly what he means by that covenant when he says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And there are those who immediately read that, and what, did they, what covenant do you think that they would think of? Well, if you know what the covenants are, right? You got the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. What was that Davidic covenant? Second Samuel 7. That God would put a king on the throne, and through David, he would bring an eternal king whose kingdom would never end. Well, who was that? Remember, it's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. It's the answer to almost every question. No, it's Jesus, right? And, and, and we know that. But the question is, was he referring to the Davidic covenant here when he said, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David? Is the Davidic coven, covenant everlasting? Yes, it is. All of God's covenants are. Because when he makes a covenant, he doesn't break it. Okay? So, yes, Davidic covenant is an everlasting covenant. But is that the only covenant that he might be referring to here? He goes on to say, I will make him a witness to the peoples. He begins by speaking of David as a witness and a leader and a commander. But remember, David is also always foreshadowing whom? Jesus. Yeah, that's the Sunday school answer again. In fact, Jesus is known as the second David, the final David, the last David. And when Jesus sets up his kingdom forever that Isaiah is going to talk about over and over, 
Jesus will sit on that throne as the David. I kind of like that name, you know? My parents named me for the Bible name. But Jesus, whose name is far above all names, his name is going to be exalted. In fact, before this passage is over, it's going to talk about his name. But I want you to see two verses in the immediate context. Go back, if you would, to Isaiah 54, verse 8. Remember I was telling you that um, chapter 55 is based on what happened in chapters 53 and 54. And you go back to chapter 54, verse 8, it says, In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. In that verse, he's talking about the, the everlasting covenant uh, when he uses the word everlasting love and he speaks of the fact that uh, the word hesed there is his covenant love. That's the word he uses over and over and is sometimes translated covenant love. In the immediate context of the previous chapter, he was talking about our salvation, how God has planned a covenant that's going to solve our sin problem. The Davidic covenant points to the kingship of Jesus, which has indirect uh, connection to our salvation. But there's another covenant. Turn over, if you would, now to chapter 61. We just looked back at 54, but let's look at a further area of context. Isaiah 61 and verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong, and I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Now, if you were reading that verse apart from Isaiah 55, what covenant would you think of? What's the one that comes after the Davidic covenant? Remember a communion? We take the cup. This cup is the, the new what? The new covenant in my blood, sometimes translated New Testament, diatheke, the new covenant in my blood. The most well-known passage about the new covenant in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 31. So let's, let's go over there just for a moment, because I want you to see where Jeremiah really lays it out for us. But I also wanted you to see what Isaiah was saying in comparison. Jeremiah 31, 31. And this is where it's spelled out. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That passage is the exact thing that Jesus was speaking of when he took the cup at the Last Supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, 
when my blood flows in a few hours and I die the death that put death to death, that new covenant that Jeremiah talked about will then be enacted. And from now on, I'll put a new heart. You won't need the Mosaic Covenant anymore. You couldn't keep it anyway. Because I'll put a new heart in you. And that new heart will, will be such that, yes, it'll be good to know what the law is, to know what God thinks, but you can't keep it. So I'm going to put a heart in you, and I'm going to keep you myself. That's what the new covenant is. The new covenant is, God says, you put your trust in me, I will save you, and I will save you forever in spite of yourself. You can't do it yourself. You can't keep it yourself. I will save you, and I will keep you saved. Now go back with me to Isaiah 55. That is what Isaiah was saying. Not the Davidic covenant, although he references David there as the witness and the commander, and, and it was through that covenant, which would eventually come the new covenant because Jesus came through that Davidic covenant. But when he says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, he's talking about our salvation. Not just the kingship of Jesus, but all whom Jesus is. And so I want you to see that. When he speaks of David as a witness, there's also the foreshadowing of the final David, Jesus. This is very messianic. It's it's pointing to Jesus, and we can see that when we look back. When he says in verse 5, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. He's talking about how through the Messiah, all nations will come to the Lord in salvation. And remember, for Israel at that time, that was unthinkable. The nations are the ungodly. They're the enemy. And from a Jewish person's point of view, he, they wanted the nations to go to hell. That's what they wanted. God, kill them all. Get rid of them all. They're the enemy. That's what they thought. But what did, what did God say to Isaiah? I'm making an offer. And this offers to everybody. And I'm making an everlasting covenant. And that covenant's going to change their hearts. And that all can come to know him. Do you see this? This is the gospel of Isaiah. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. God has this incredible invitation tucked away here in the Old Testament that sheds light on the New Testament, the basis for what the apostolic preaching of the cross was. That leads to this next thought. And if that part wasn't clear, then this part surely will be. Verses 6 and 7 speaks of God's inflexible instruction, which is directed, directed to unbelievers. It was, again, uh, it was D.L. Moody who was walking down the street one day. And he walked up to a, a certain stranger. And he did this kind of thing all the time. You know who D.L. Moody is? He was an evangelist in the 19th century. School was named for him, Moody Bible Institute. You know, there's a lot of people now that don't even know what that is. They, they have never heard of some of those guys. Like Charles Spurgeon. But we know, right? Okay, so D.L. Moody. He's walking down the street. He looks at this perfect stranger and he says, Sir, are you a Christian? And the perfect stranger says, Would you mind your own business? And Moody said, This is my business. I want to be like that. My business is the gospel of Jesus. That's who I, I want to breathe that. I want to be that. 
Notice what, what God says through Isaiah in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Is there a more clear passage in the New Testament than that? This is the, this is the gospel. This is showing how do you respond to the gospel? God calls everyone to seek him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now someone might say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just thought of something. Romans chapter 3 says what? No one seeks after God. Oh. And here God is saying through Isaiah, seek the Lord. Is that a contradiction? What does it mean? Well, in Romans, and, and by the way, Paul was quoting Psalm 14. He was quoting, you know, Old Testament. Um, in Romans, when he said, no one seeks, no one does that on their own. The Holy Spirit's got to bring conviction. There's got to be that drawing. There's some invisible things that God does that we don't understand. But that does not remove the human responsibility and what's interesting, you get to the, old, the, end of the, the end of the Bible, at the judgment time, and God is going to call everybody to account, and he's going to call unbelievers, according to their works, what they did. By the way, we're going to be judged for our works as believers, for what we did, not to determine whether we're saved or not, but as an accountability. There's going to be rewards it also says there's going to be tears. That drives me to want to confess my sins. I don't want to stand before the Lord with unconfessed sin. Do you? I don't. Do you know when you confess your sin, it'll never be mentioned again? It's buried in the depths of the deepest sea. It's taken as far as the east is from the west. I want to confess because I'd like it to be gone. But unconfessed sin gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord. Have you noticed that? Have you ever met a believer that lets unconfessed sin mess up their life and they backslide and act like an unbeliever? And only God can figure out if they really are saved? I know I can't. God gives this inflexible instruction. Seek the Lord while he may be found. By the way, that tells us there's a limit in the time to do this. There's going to come a time when you won't be able to do it anymore. And you know people who are lost. I talked to some this week. You know people who are lost. And they need the Lord. And time is of the essence. Some have called this passage in verses 6 and 7 the invitation. And I said verses 1 through 5 were the invitation. And maybe they're both an invitation. But I see this more, more than an invitation. In the first few verses, he says, come, everybody. You don't have any money? Come. You, you have problems? I'll, I'll take your problems. I'll satisfy you. Just what Jesus said in Matthew 11. All who are weary and heavy laden, come, I'll take you. I won't turn back anybody. But now, in Isaiah 55, 6, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What did Paul write in uh, Romans 10, 13? For whosoever shall what? Call 
call upon the Lord shall be what? Saved. You have a responsibility to respond to the message. The people that you witness to, they have a responsibility. And remember, when Jesus sent the 70 out, and he said, if people don't listen, just shake the dust off your feet and keep going as a witness against them. These are clear commands. And the Lord is calling out, repent and believe. It sounds a lot like the foreshadowing of John the Baptist's preaching of the gospel of repentance. It sounds a lot like what Jesus said when he said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God calls unbelievers to repentance. Does he call believers to repentance? Yes, but in a different way. There's the repentance, turning away and coming to know the Lord and being saved, regenerated, born again. And, and once you are saved, the Lord is not going to let you go. But for the Christian, yeah, there's times where we need to turn back, where we step off the way. But he's specifically talking here to unbelievers. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The words wicked and unrighteous are not applied to Christians. They're not applied to believers. Those are words of unbelievers. And he says, let them return to the Lord. You might say, wait a minute, how can they return to the Lord if they're unbelievers? Remember the context of Israel, and this is something we have a hard time with. God looks at Israel as the community. And within that community, there's believers and unbelievers. But a lot of the people in the community, they go to the festival. They, they give lip service to Yahweh. They're, they're under the covenant. But their heart isn't right. Do you realize that most of the Old Testament Israelite Jewish people were not saved and they will not be in heaven? Only those who believed. And so that's what he's saying. Return to the Lord that you've already been told about. But in this case, they need to turn to him for salvation. And he says, and he will have compassion on you, for he will abundantly pardon. This is a great message. This is the gospel. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. But there's one last thing. And it's verses 8 through 13. And it kind of gets all kind of compressed together here. Because it's talking about God's inscrutable intent. Now, I kind of like that word, inscrutable. What does it mean? If you say, Pastor, I don't understand unscrutable. You're right, that's it. It means you can't understand. Okay? God's inscrutable intent is the, the, the fact that God's ways are impossible to completely understand. God's inscrutable intent is acceptable only to believers. Do you agree? Is that true? You're not sure? Some of you are wondering, what are we talking about? Look what he says in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Can I get a witness? Anybody ever feel that? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Those verses are underlined in my Bible because that, that's where I live on a daily basis many times. Lord, I don't understand. Lately, we've been watching funerals through live stream. And we watched another one yesterday of another one of our friends that I mentioned last week, Matt West, 
And he's one of 13 people now who have passed away since my mom died that we have been close to in some way. As I watched that, 44-year-old man who got COVID and died two weeks later, uh, his mother got up and gave a testimony that was amazing. Her husband had just died recently, and now her son. And I sat there thinking, wow, how do you get up and talk to a funeral packed with hundreds of people there? There's some hundreds of people there. In the church, we've been there in Orlando. And then his son got up there. 17-year-old son got up there, handled the scriptures, and spoke and read a letter that he wrote to his dad that made everybody cry. I sat there weeping, thinking, you know, Lord, your ways are not my ways. I don't understand how you take a 44-year-old man with three kids at home and suddenly he's gone, his wife, and left with that. And he had so many gifts and he touched so many people. They packed that church for that thing. He even touched me and I only knew him a little bit. But you know, it's times like that that I have to say, okay, Lord, you said that. You said that your ways are not like us. I believe you. I believe you. I really do. Because I can't see, Lord, what you're doing sometimes. You see, God's inscrutable intent is acceptable only to believers. Only Christians can say, I don't get this, but I'm going to trust God anyway. I don't understand it, but I'm going to trust. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to go forward in faith. That's the test of a Christian. A lot of people shake their fist at God and say, God, you did something that I don't like. You allowed something that I don't like. Therefore, I'm going to turn my back on you. Can you imagine how small such a person looks to God? Can you imagine shaking your fist at God and how small do you look when he looks at you personally, shaking your fist at him? I don't think that moves him. He wants all of us to trust him. And he gives this incredible invitation. If you come to me, I'll meet your needs. But I want you to know something. There are things that you are not going to understand. And you're going to have to trust me. God's ways are inscrutable. And you know what? He's going to accomplish his purpose. And he will not be stopped. Here's some beautiful poetic imagery here in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. How many times I've claimed that verse, Isaiah 55, 11. How many times I've preached a sermon over the past 39 plus years and wondered, Lord, I put it out there, but I have no idea what good it did. I don't see anybody responding to it. Many times I've thought that. But you know what? That's not what it's about. It's about God doing as he chooses to do, and he will do it. Do you believe it? 
You don't convince me. Do you believe it? Okay. Don't leave me hanging up here. God's word always accomplishes his purposes. We don't understand it. He says it's like the rain and the snow coming down from heaven. We don't understand how the weather patterns and and how God waters and, and keeps everything going perfectly. It's interesting to try to figure it out. It's beautiful imagery. Basically, he's saying it's God who provides your food. He sends the rain. He provides seed to the sower and bread to the eater. It's God who provides you everything, whether you know it or not. And he says, I have a purpose, and my purpose will not be stopped. When my word goes forth, it will come back just the way I wanted it. It will never return empty. And you know, this is a promise as we teach his word, and as we proclaim it, as we try to be a witness to people. You open your mouth for the Lord, and he will not let you down. It might not turn out the way you want it, but he will do it. And he says, the proof of this is my name. My name is an everlasting sign. And the fact that my word will never fail, this is what he says at the end of verse 55. For you shall go out in joy, verse 12, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And again, he's using poetry in this beautiful way. He's taking inanimate objects and he's picturing them. Can't you just see these trees giving praise to God? Clapping, you know, like they're waving their, their, their branches together and saying, God, you are great. You know, remember when, when Jesus said, if no one would give praise to God, the very stones would cry out. He could make the stones give him praise if he wants to. And the trees of the field just clap their hands. The next time you see the tree blowing and the wind going through there, just say, there's God getting some praise. So beautiful. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. As you look around at creation today and the beauty of it, even on a rainy and cloudy day, that kind of messed up the picnic, the cookout, the time together. We look around at God's amazing creation, and it's all a reminder that he's God. There is no other, and we worship him. God's name is precious, and he guards his name. He exalts his name. God's name represents his nature. His name, Yahweh, you know what it means? The, uh, the uh, I am that I am. The self-existent one. The one who needs nothing. He didn't create the world because he was lonely. But he did it to the praise of his own glory. And he's included you. He made you. And made you life. Made you in his image. And he's going to keep you, if you know Jesus, forever and ever. How awesome. God's name is important to our worship. Well, this is what I've been trying to say in summary. Number one, God's incredible invitation is offered to all people. It's the gospel according to Isaiah. Secondly, God's inflexible instruction is directed to unbelievers. They must repent, turn from their sins to be saved. And thirdly, God's inscrutable intent is acceptable only to believers. Only believers will say, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to trust you anyway.
I hope that that's where you are. This time I'm going to do principles from the prophet. Change it up a little bit. Number one, have you answered God's incredible invitation? You know, it's possible somebody could be here who's never trusted Christ. I don't know. Maybe somebody watching the uh, live stream. If you're here today or you're listening, you know, the gospel's so simple that a child can receive it. All God wants from you to say is, I can't do it myself. God, help me. Here's my life, God. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust Jesus. I believe Jesus is God. He died for me. And I accept that gift. You know, if you have the faith like the grain of a mustard seed, that's all you need. That's what Jesus said. Just the smallest amount of faith will get you there. Trust him. He offers redemption from our sins, salvation, eternal life. And not only that, he gives the riches of glory to all who believe. Another principle, number two, if the Bible teaches that God seeks us first, why does it command us to seek him? Did we get that one right? Does God initiate? Yes. But does he require us to respond? Yes. Thirdly, when you don't know the answer to why, when it comes to God's control in this life, where do you turn? Do you just throw your hands up in the air and say, I don't get this, I don't like this, this faith stuff, I need something else. Or do you say, Lord, I, I don't see, I can't trace what you're doing, but I'm going to trust you anyway. That's what he wants. Number four, do you understand how the gospel, according to Isaiah, agrees with the New Testament teaching? Remember, salvation is always the same in the Old Testament and the New. You know what the only difference is? God requires that you believe what he said. When Abraham believed, what did he believe? Did he believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again? He didn't even know that. What did he believe? He believed what God said up to that point. And God said, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and a blessing. And through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. Do you believe it? And Genesis 15, 6 says, he believed God and he was justified. It was accounted to him for righteousness. So wherever you are in the Old Testament, if you believe what God says, that's salvation. When you get to the New Testament, it's the full-blown gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't leave it out. Does that make sense? Salvation's always by faith. Last, last one. Are you ready to explore the book of Isaiah and find God's truth for your life? Because this book is full of things for you and for me. And so let's work on it together. God speaks to us through his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we, we worship you. And I thank you for the gospel according to Isaiah, that it's the same message, that you offer salvation to all who would believe. Lord, sometimes we need help with turning from sin. Help us to trust you for that as well. And put all of our faith in you and know that you will change us and make us new. So we're trusting you with all that we are. May your name be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.